Hi, this is Mimi, and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Today's guest is Rebecca Joy Ayer, who's the CEO of Project Heal, which I'll let you get into, but I am so excited to have you on and a little bit about how we met, gosh, probably through social media as with Mm -hmm. usual, Um, but she's just been amazing and wonderful, and I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you, Mimi. I'm so happy to be here. I think the first time we talked was on an Instagram live for Project Heal. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I'm really excited about this. And the conversation that we're going to have, I think is going to be one of my favorite ones. I do some podcasts from time to time and I've never gotten such a thoughtful list of questions before. So thank you. I'm so excited. Um, Tell us about yourself. What do you do? What do you love? Yeah. I love the, what do you love question? So I am the CEO of project heal. I've been in that role for two and a half years, which is wild. And I've been at project heal for three and a half years. The first year I was the treatment access program director stepped into the CEO role in April of 2020, which was a very memorable time. (laughs) And I'm a therapist by trade. I've been treating eating disorders since 2011 with a break in there to do some other things, which I'll probably get into when you ask me about my journey to becoming a therapist (laughs) and how I got into Project Heal. What I love though, hmm, well, I love dogs and books and karaoke and eating and special beverages and I love playing games on my phone. If my time spent is any indication of what I love. I love bad TV. I also love good TV. Bad TV for me is like, you know, network television, like drama procedurals and like, you know, sitcoms that I'm just kind of dissociating when I watch. And yeah, what else do I love? I mean, I really love learning and activism and advocacy. I do that in my personal time, as well as it's a huge part of my job. I like talking. (laughs) I also love comedy. I love going to comedy shows. I follow a lot of comedians on Instagram. I love, like I was asked recently what my favorite kind of book is. And I like think that a comedy memoir is my favorite type of book, Mm -hmm. you know, like comedy essays. I just, I love to laugh. Yeah. I think I love, I love my first sip of coffee in the morning. It's one of my favorite things. I love therapy. I like being in therapy. I like providing therapy, therapy junkie. (laughs) I think that's probably it. I love organizing. Like I like lists and, you know, the container store. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That store is, oh, yeah. I always, that's always my answer. Like, you know, one of my favorite kind of like random facts is like, if I could have a thousand dollar gift card to any store, it would be the container store. And it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be close (laughs) to enough. How am I supposed to get an alpha, you know, shelving system with a thousand dollars? Oh my goodness. I know. I love it. I know. (laughs) Yeah. I love all of those pieces. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. Tell us about your journey to becoming a therapist Mm -hmm. and then shifting into fundraising and advocacy work. How did you decide what your next right thing was along the way? Yeah, well, the answer to both of these is like long, so I'll keep it as condensed as possible. But I had like a really tumultuous childhood and a lot of kind of early childhood trauma and, you know, a lot of like adjustment issues in my teen years and certainly was just a hurting young person. And so I got into therapy as a client in my teens and frankly, it saved my life. And then I went to undergrad and had to select a major and I just picked psychology. And I was one of my only friends that never switched my major. And I just found it really fascinating. It was really motivating to do work that like, you know, to study something that I was genuinely fascinated by. And I think my personal journey of trying to understand why am I the way that I am? Why are my parents the way that they are? Like, how do I become a better person? How do I heal myself? Those young parts of me, those questions I asked myself as a teenager, I've always been like a 
a truth seeker. I've always been trying to figure out like the meaning of life. Why am I here? Who am I? I've always been a philosophically oriented person and psychology gave me something to hold on to, gave me something that she wants, gave me some categories, it gave me some language. And so, yeah, I loved studying that in undergrad. And then I remember vividly being told by a professor in undergrad that I would not be a good therapist because I had too many opinions, <laughs> that my job was to be neutral and have no opinions. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to do, I guess I'm not going to be a therapist. And so I started my first job out of undergrad was at Microsoft in their corporate philanthropy department. So I was a grant maker mm. and worked, worked with people who are doing global philanthropy on the corporate side. And I found myself feeling like I was making a difference in people's lives. We distributed hundreds of millions of dollars a year to nonprofits around the world. And I kept feeling like, gosh, you know, I'm in my ivory tower giving away money. I really want to be in the room with an individual person helping them change. Like that's what I most want to do. And so then I started thinking about grad school again and defying my professor's advice. And then I went to grad school and got my master's in counseling psychology. And obviously at that time was very much intending to be a therapist. And it wasn't until my internship that I realized that eating disorders would be an area of specialty. I really didn't want to work with eating disorders. My every single woman in my family, my mom and both of my sisters had serious eating disorders. And I was the only one who escaped without one, although certainly had disordered eating and, you know, growing up around that was really, it was very prominent in my family and in my life. But because of that, I was like, you know, eating disorders are too hard. They're too close to home. I don't want anything to do with them. Da, 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 da. And then I ended up at my internship at an eating disorder treatment <laughs> center. <laughs> and so then my last year, all of my thinking was around integrating everything I had learned up until then about myself and about the human mind and how people change and integrating it with eating disorder, understanding and understanding the role that food played in people's identity development and in their coping strategies. And I just found not only was it endlessly fascinating to me, but I found working with people with eating disorders was extremely healing because I was for the first time really encountering people who were actively trying to heal and wanted my help. And I got to help them get where they wanted to go. And so I, up until that point, I genuinely had no imagination for someone recovering from an eating disorder. I just had never met anyone who was like, I used to have an eating disorder, right? It was always like, this is like something I live with and I, I'm not going to get treatment for it. And everybody else has to just deal with it. And I will have to deal with it forever. It was just, yeah, healing and recovery was just not even on my radar. And so learning that recovery was possible and seeing people recover really healed something in me that I think felt really hopeless growing up around it so much. Um, and then how I got into the advocacy and fundraising piece, I will just say, you know, I took a break from the clinical world, moved to New York city. I got pretty burnt out working for five years at a treatment center. Most of that time being in admissions and seeing how inaccessible eating disorder treatment was, how many people we had to turn away, how many people's insurance wouldn't authorize them, how, many people's insurance would cut them off, losing patients when their insurance cut them off prematurely. Um, it was really hard on me. And I think at that time, at least treatment centers were just like the kind of place most people would work for two years. And so being there for five years, I think I overstayed <laughs> and I, <laughs> uh, I, I had long since surpassed my limit, right? I should have, I should have left earlier. So I took some time off and I did random things. I was the director of communications and marketing. And then I was a director of strategy and insights at a marketing agency. I just, I took a break from the clinical and started applying some of my psychology mind to my understanding of how people change and how relationships are healed to consumer relationships with companies. It was really, really interesting. Yeah. And then I found out about this position that Project Heal was hiring for this treatment access program director position in 2019. My friend was applying for it. They didn't end up getting it. And then they copied me on the email that their rejection email and said, you have to interview my friend, Rebecca, this is, this job is perfect for her. Oh. 
Because it was this weird mix of all of these things. Oh, and I forgot to say when I was in grad school, the school was a nonprofit. So we did some fundraising. So it's like I had been in philanthropy on the grant making side and on the fundraising side. I'm an eating disorder therapist who really understands barriers to care and insurance, which not every eating disorder provider does for sure. And then I had all of this like kind of government affairs and marketing and communications and like program development and national expansion, all of these things that made my resume make no sense at all. (laughs) And then this project heal position kind of fell in my lap. And I was like, this is kind of the integration of every single random thing I've ever done. And it suddenly makes my resume make a lot of sense. And I was like, okay, let's do this. So I started working at project heal. And then, you know, within a year, our founder and CEO at the time, Christina Safran stepped away to start her public sector eating disorder treatment program equip. And they were looking for a CEO and very long story short at the beginning of the pandemic, I was asked by the board to step into the CEO role and I was not <laughs> sure I would do a good job. I'm like, I'm not a, I'm not a nonprofit executive. You know, I've dabbled in a lot of things. I'm such a generalist. And then I'm a specialist in this very specific way, right? Eating disorder treatment access, but I'm not sure I can raise the money that we need to raise. I'm not sure that I know how to run an entire company, you know, an organization. I don't know if it's the right thing, but I did have a really clear vision and I felt ready to throw myself into a a challenge. And I said, yes. And I think we all knew it was a little bit of a gamble. And then it has turned into like my favorite job I've ever had something that really integrates almost every single part of me. It's like, yeah, it's the career of my lifetime. It just feels like this genuine outpouring of so many things that matter to me. And I'm really, really grateful and honored. And I feel like I've been very fortunate. Some of the pieces of timing have been really helpful around kind of how fast I was able to change the organization. And it's been, it's been such a huge honor and it's a weird answer. The fundraising part of that question remains my least favorite thing. I have only met a couple people in my life that are like, I love fundraising. Um, it's awful. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like living in just scarcity, you know, relying on the generosity of others, not sure whether you're going to get your needs met as an organization. It's really, you know, anxiety provoking and vulnerable and just ask yourself, how much would it take for you to ask someone to give you money? Mm. Right. So many people are like, I'll do anything, but I'm not asking people for money. Right. Yeah. It's just uncomfortable. Um, it's vulnerable. It feels icky. It's just weird. And so to me, fundraising is a necessary evil of, of nonprofit world. And I'm so grateful to every single person who has donated and supported project heal. And when we get that support, it, you know, I feel like a tactile somatic relief every single time (laughs) because when we have sustainable funding and financial health, we can focus on the things that really matter rather than constantly trying to make sure we can make ends meet. I think it's like, if you lived in financial scarcity as a person, you're, you, you wouldn't have as much time to focus on self-care and like values and, you know, all of those things. (laughs) And so well-being is the privilege of someone who knows that their basic needs are going to be met. And I think that's Mm. the tension of working on nonprofit is that we're trying to run a really values aligned, intentional, impactful organization at the same time as being like, hope, hope that all works out at the end of the year, you know? (laughs) Oh my goodness. And if I could wave a magic wand and change anything about my job, it would be for some angel to just donate, you know, $5 million and just give us literally like a year off from being worried about that. And that would just open up so many doors to what's really possible in this field. Cause right. We spend a lot of time and money just trying to make sure we can keep the lights on. And that's just to me as someone who's a therapist and interested in systemic change and knows how much there is to do, I would just so much rather focus on that stuff. Yeah. So that's my honest answer about fundraising. And you're also catching me at the end of the year, uh, when fundraising, it's like, this is like a nonprofit's tax season. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. 
as for accountants, you know, I am sprinting towards a deadline and we're like, okay, we've got to, we've got to do this. So my fundraising stress is at its highest in the last couple months of the year. No question. Yeah. It's if you're listening and you want to donate that money. <laughs> yes, please. I promise it goes to a really good cause. It um, does. Yeah, it really does. So thank you for that. And I feel it's such a unique, like you said, integration of your experiences and your passions. And it's so cool that it gets to come to fruition in this way. I know it really is. I I feel, I pinch myself a lot um, because I've had a lot of jobs that I had some fun in, or I found to be meaningful or, you know, were an interesting challenge, but I haven't ever had all three of those at, at the same time. And I've never had a job where I'm just like, oh no, I really, this is exactly where I should be. And even when it's hard and I'm burnt out and, you know, having a hard day or a hard month or whatever else, there's never a question for me about, should I just go? I'm tired. (laughs) Whereas, you know, in other roles, I think when I, when I have those negative experiences, I'm like, I don't have to stay here. I could just go. I'm like, no, I'm on a mission right now. Um, And so that really keeps me grounded through the waves of nonprofit life. I love it. I love it a lot. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. When I think about Project Heal, I think about intersectional work and focus on increasing access for people with marginalized identities, which I think is pretty amazing and very grounded in those aspects of treatment for marginalized identities and kind of different than a lot of other, um, not to throw anyone under the bus, but different eating disorder organizations where I think sometimes they're looking to change and go from their grounding in like, okay, we have had this historical lens of cisgender thin white women, but let's make sure we have like a black person on staff or like a queer person. Whereas I feel with Project Heal, it's very centered around, let's go from the people who are typically excluded as the center and the foundation. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to hear what it's been like to interact with other organizations, whether they're eating disorder specific or more generally mental health from a place of uncompromising values. And how has this landed for people? Oh, well, this is the subject of my book. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have so many answers to this. I think that the main thing I want to say is, well, I'm a thin cis white woman. And so that is something that's really important to name as I have also shifted Project Heal's focus quite a bit to what you just described. Um, And I think that they are related. And I know that that's going to come up in some of our future questions, but um, the way that this came to fruition is I think out of logic, necessity, and personal conviction. And so the first thing I want to name is that Project Heal was not intersectionally minded for the majority of our, of our history. I think we understood, you know, the stereotype and how much being centered in that stereotype improves your chances of accessing eating disorder treatment and accessing eating disorder treatment that was designed for you. So that was always understood and named and internally discussed. There was some precedent to people who fell outside of that dominant eating disorder stereotype in terms of, you know, distribution of resources. So there was an acknowledgement of that, but it wasn't part of our messaging. It wasn't part of our brand. It wasn't part of our public stake. And I think in a lot of ways we were sort of apolitical in that way. And to me, when I stepped into the role, it became very obvious that that was not going to fly. I think mostly because we had been so focused on healthcare and financial barriers. But when you actually look at things through an intersectional lens, it becomes very obvious that people who are outside of that dominant narrative are a lot more likely to experience financial and insurance barriers to care. And so to not name the systemic barriers felt like a cop out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the timing of my stepping into the role in April of 2020, and then late May, George Floyd's murder and the Amplify Melanated Voices movement of June, and just the whole racial justice movement of that summer. And I think some meaningful change that some folks have committed to make in the years since it really set me up 
myself and my personal politics being much further left than Project Heal's original politics when I joined, I was like, this is necessary for us to speak about and it's necessary for us to incorporate. And it and the, the way that it's worked out for us so well is that it's absolutely relevant to barriers to care. So it's not so much like the tokenism and the fad of like, this is what everybody's talking about right now. So we need to talk about it. It's like, no, absolutely. BIPOC folks are less likely to be diagnosed with their eating disorders and less likely to receive quality care. And that's very evident in the numbers of people who are in treatment. It's evident in the numbers of providers with those identities. This is one of the the most inequitable spaces and one of the most homogenous spaces in all of mental health care, right? There are issues across the board with people um, with marginalized identities not being well represented in the healthcare community broadly or in you know nonprofit leadership broadly, et cetera. But the eating disorder space, considering how much more likely a marginalized person is to experience eating disorder symptoms, the lack of representation in the eating disorder field is so egregious to me that it became, I think, something that we needed to put heft behind and the statistics are there. So that's where the logic comes in. And that's where the, like, this isn't, you know, my personal mood (laughs) and it's not, (laughs) oh, this is what our customers need to hear from us. Or this is what people are talking about. It's like, if we aren't talking about this, then we are not doing our jobs. And so the concept of equitable access to care became a huge piece. And when you understand equity, it becomes really obvious why this whole help everyone with eating disorders just doesn't cut it. Mm-hmm. The difference between equality and equity is critical. Equality is just an equal distribution of resources across the board, no discrimination based on identity, no consideration for the multiple factors that might impact your experience. Our programs are delivered on a case-by-case basis with all kinds of opportunity for us to be equitable in this distribution of resources. And so when we actually take into consideration, we can fulfill a value of actual equity, which is actually the disproportionate distribution of resources to people who have disproportionately more barriers. And that to me feels so aligned with the heart of why Project Heal started and was just frankly missing. And it was very natural to add it. And I think because I, as a person was in that position and had the opportunity to change it, I pushed for it and I had a supportive board who let me do it. And, you know, we set out to transform project heal into a social justice oriented eating disorder nonprofit. And it was looking back, I think a pretty bold move, uh, considering when I look around now at how few, I think eating disorder nonprofits would describe themselves as social justice oriented organizations, even though they might have conversations like this. Um, I think people are still afraid to align themselves with those values. And I, I think that if project Hill doesn't, then we're failing. And to me, it all comes back to the conversation about black lives matter versus all lives matter. And if you understand what those words mean and what those movements are about, then you can understand why it's so important for project heal to deliberately center marginalized folks with eating disorders. The fact is that we help all people with eating disorders, right? We help white people access eating disorder treatment. We help cis people access eating disorder treatment. We help straight people access eating disorder treatment. We help, um, able-bodied and underweight people, right? We help teenagers, like we help people who fit that, you know, stereotypical eating disorder picture. So it's not at the exclusion of that dominant eating disorder stereotype. It's basically our messaging, our language, our programs, our people, our staff, our board, our branding, all of that has to be an overt signal to people who have been historically excluded and ignored to say we're for you in the same way that like, and I I don't mean to say project deal is like black lives matter because black lives matter is a really important movement that is dramatically bigger than anything that we're doing. But my point is it's when, when a person says black lives matter, they are not saying that no other lives matter. They're saying black lives. We say black lives matter because black lives 
don't matter enough to other people. Like, like you have to go out of your way to signal, to right the wrong, to mm-hmm. contradict what is so obviously the underlying belief. And people in specific communities and with specific identities, they don't think that the eating disorder field is for them. They look around and they see a bunch of people that look like me. We could all be sisters. And it's like, I don't belong in that club. I probably don't have an eating disorder. I shouldn't even get into this field like this. It, it's that combined with probably specific examples of harm in those spaces. We have to go out of our way to try to make this a safe field for people who don't fit the stereotype. It's not just about we help everybody. We're really specifically trying to make sure our care is safe for trans people. We are specifically trying to make sure our care has a harm reduction lens for people who experience racism and oppression in healing spaces. We have to acknowledge the ways that the healing systems that are in place do not account for so many different lived experiences that they become replications of harm that is experienced in their life. That is the antithesis of healing. And if we're not going out of our way to do that, then you're never going to repair that trust bind. That's like saying, this is an analogy I've never used before, but it's like, if you're in a room and you have only been talking to, you know, two out of the five people in the room, (laughs) and then you suddenly go, oh shit, excuse my language. Uh, (laughs) I haven't been talking to these other people. I guess I should talk to them. And then you just make an announcement. Like I'd like to talk with all of you. Those three people are not going to come towards you and say, oh, now it seems like you're open to me. You have to go and make amends to those three people and say, I'm sorry for ignoring you for all these years. Tell me how that was for you. What do you need from me in order to trust me? How can this be a safe place for you? What are the ways in which this space besides me just ignoring you don't, don't work for you? You have to deliberately rectify it. And, you know, the efforts that we've made to be an equity oriented organization have been really successful so far. We have so much more to do and so much room to grow. I mean, change happens at the speed of trust is one of the kind of orienting sentences of my life that one of my mentors, Milton Reynolds said to me and repeats to me often, you know, we're not going to change the eating disorder field any quicker than we can repair the trust with the individuals that the eating disorder field has not been of service to. And so, you know, you don't just get to have one Instagram live with a person of color and say, (laughs) now we're, now we're a safe place for black people. This has to be so much deeper and so much more consistent and think about it. When you have ruptured trust with someone or a ruptured trust of the system, you have to see that they mean it over time. You have to watch them follow through on what they say they're going to do. You have to see that they can handle your criticism and your anger, and you have to build that trust back up and figure out maybe not even back up for the first time. And that requires accountability for the past. And it requires a laying down of ego. And it's like, it's a very obvious direction, I think, for Project Heal to go in. And I'm grateful that we've done it. And we've been able to attract some phenomenal people for our board and our staff that really, really help people look at Project Heal's website and understand and look at how we talk about things, look at the people who we're consistently centering. And over time, I think people have started to be like, okay. I think they mean it. And so, you know, more and more they do come to us for help, which I think is that the proof is in the pudding of, you know, how many people are willing to be part of your work or willing to trust you with their care or willing to come with you in their darkest hour in their most vulnerable moment. And do you follow through with what you say or your values? Do you actually prioritize these people or is it just your marketing? And I think the really, really important that marketing is integrated with actual program delivery and direct service. If the way you're talking about your work publicly isn't aligning with what's happening behind closed doors that nobody ever sees, then you're not doing it. Mm. That's a long answer. (laughs) I could go on and on. I love it. I think that equity piece, I'm grateful for your explanation and is really important about disproportionately distributing those forces because that's the way that the system has been built and you can't go back to well, let's just try again from all the same because inherently in those systems, there's been disadvantages and people aren't going to benefit equally from those resources unless you understand. Um, And I really appreciated too how you talked about the historical way that 
Project Teal wasn't as intersectional. I think whether knowingly or unknowingly, it's such a good model to understand and to own where we've been, which Mm -hmm. is something that does not take place very much and the ways that we are contributing and part of different systems Mm -hmm. and how we can learn from that, but we have to name where we've been. Yeah. And, you know, some of that harm can be overt and a lot of harm is really in just absence of action, in silence, in collusion, in preserving your your image for the sake of being appealing to all. And so I do think that Project Heal, I didn't answer this part of your question, like no question, there are some people with, you know, very conservative politics who would take one look at our content and our website and our language and go, you know, no. (laughs) But I think uh, for the most part, it has landed in a resonant way with most people because the data is impossible to deny the statistics are troubling as hell. You know, when you really understand eating disorder prevalence in certain communities and then access to eating disorders in those same communities, it's so unjust that it's impossible to deny. There's not a lot of controversy there. It's very, very simple. So I think that it's landed and resonated. And interestingly, I think one of the coolest things is that at Project Heal, we have a lot of different folks on our board. And I think you can kind of see a spectrum. You've got people who are activists and agitators and visionaries, and they're at the forefront and they're calling people out and they're calling things out and they're, you know, very vocal progressives, right? And then you've got folks who have been part of the field for decades and maybe even were part of building this system that isn't working for everyone. And they're committed to continuing the work of making sure it works for everyone. And when you can get the quote unquote old guard of the eating disorder field to say, wow, what you're doing is important. And you can get people who have lived experience and maybe even are still experiencing systemic barriers to care to go, wow, what you're doing is really important. Then I think that what you're doing is just, it rings true regardless of what perspective you're coming from. And I think that has been really helpful in the eating disorder field. I've noticed that a lot of what we've talked about where some people get it more than others, uh, for sure. Some people get it more than we do, you know, and we Mm -hmm. learn from them. And then there are certainly people who are doing what all kinds of people and organizations do, which is pay lip service, but never actually do any sort of self interrogation, accountability processes, or integration of those understandings with actual practices. And that's hard. I hate seeing that because it then becomes, that's what builds up the distrust. Like if you are a trans black disabled neurodivergent, uh, let me think higher weight person seeking eating disorder treatment. And you go and you see these websites and you see their Instagrams and you see that, you know, lots of people are talking about lots of these things. It's like, how can you tell who means it? How can you tell who gets it? How can you tell who really is doing the work behind the scenes and who actually wants to, wants to do better. It's really, really hard to discern. And so I think that it's really understandable that the baseline is, I don't believe you until Mm -hmm. you can prove it to me. And so I think that's what's frustrating about some of the folks that are not actually doing the work, but just talking about special interest, quote, quote, unquote, uh, (laughs) issues. And I think that that makes it a lot harder for people to build trust in those who are really actually trying to do the work. And it's only over time that people can sort of tell the difference. And my hope and my goal with Project Heal is to help hold some of those institutions and individuals accountable through our work and for them to also see it's worth the risk to do this work, right? People are worried about seeming too political and all of that stuff. I mean, I find that to be the worst personally. My my personal opinion about that is just like, rage and disgust and judgment, but, (laughs) you know, professionally I understand, right. I think people are like, well, we don't want to be too political. We don't want to offend anybody. And, you know, is this in our scope? Is this in our lane? And people hide behind that as a way to not, um, 
do what they need to do in order to make eating disorder care truly accessible and safe and effective for all. And the tragedy is that that's killing people. That's the consequence. This, at the end of the day, it really is life or death for people. And so I hope over time that people become a little bit less risk averse and that institutions become a little bit less risk averse. And I don't know what that will take. It's not very common for corporations to not be risk averse. You know, they've got a lot of lawyers in their ears and people telling them not to take risks. And that's really sad. It is. It does make, it makes sense under capitalism, right? It makes a lot of sense, but it's sad. It is. It is. It's, um, I was like, don't go down this, don't go down this. But (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is the system of punitive punishment and how that really makes it hard to be accountable, to look back honestly at our past. And what I mean by that is when our form of justice and our form of accountability is you're going to get your needs taken away. You're going to be in a jail or you're going to be in a prison and you're going to be isolated, taken away. You don't have good nourishment. You don't have your needs met and you deserve bad things. Who's going to want to say I did a bad thing or I did something I regret because then you're going to end up losing disproportionately more Mm -hmm. and not feeling like a human and being open to harm. Um, and I think that's the risk here is that the capitalism and the punitive systems haven't changed, but are we able to push back within that system? Because something has to change and something mm-hmm. has to shift. And so I think, you know, my first thought is like, gosh, imagine if a treatment center was like, we did a lot of harm, we need to change. Well, then they would lose funding and then they would not be able to run. And that, I think it's not only, I mean, I think there's an ego and image piece there, but then again, it's also like, oh my gosh, I won't have a job. I won't be able to feed my kids. And in a system where we should have our basic needs met, I think all of us shouldn't have that fear in the realm of accountability it just makes it really, really hard. I mean, honestly, when you think about it from a legal perspective, corporations admitting to harm is like just not going to happen because it opens them up to litigation and legal responsibility and huge lawsuits. And so I I, I think that what people really want from corporations is not coming you know, if it's that, if it's an admission of responsibility, but I do think we can demand change. And unfortunately, I think that trust repair does require an accountability process, which is why corporate brand sentiment is really, really hard to repair because there's a conflict of interest there for them. And so it's a little bit less the case for a nonprofit where our money comes entirely from donations. And we don't have stakeholders that we're responsible to. We don't have the same, I think, liability exposure or risk exposure to being really frank about our past failures or shortcomings or, or, you know, huge thematic misses. And I understand, you know, when you, when you meet a corporate attorney, all of a sudden you'll understand why you're never going to get those apologies. (laughs) It's not, it's not going to (laughs) happen. So It's hard. It's really hard. But I do think that the punitive piece around accountability is really, really interesting on the individual level. And that opens up a whole conversation as well. But I I think when you were talking, the thing that I kind of want to bring up is you really have to understand what your personal ethos is, what your philosophy is. And I personally, as a human being, am an abolitionist. And what that means to me and what it means to me to be harm reduction oriented, anti-carceral and to think about, you know, even criminal justice reform and all of those things is you really have to believe that people are fundamentally good, that every person is deserving of respect. You have to have a value on forgiveness and on repair. And you really have to have a mind or a heart, or at least a commitment to say, no one is the worst thing they've ever done. And there has to be an imagination for a path forward. There has to be an imagination for healing, for repair. And that to me is where the eating disorder field is literally all about healing. This is about 
helping people heal. And so if we can't have an imagination for healing across the board, systemically, relationally, (laughs) individually, then I don't know if we have any business being in this field. So that anchors me a lot when I think about what Project Heal is doing. If I didn't think that this system could change, I would not be doing this job. Do I think it's going to change quickly? No. Do I think it's going to change and become perfect? Absolutely not. Do I think that it's possible for people of all identities to be safe, generally safe in eating disorder treatment settings? Yes. Do I think that a world where every person with an eating disorder in the United States can access eating disorder treatment that works without going into extreme debt is possible? Yes. Those are very possible changes. And, you know, it's not nearly as broken. It's, it's really, really broken. And it's also not nearly as broken as a lot of our other systems that are, you know, hundreds of years old. Mm -hmm. This is a new field and we have a bunch of empaths in it. (laughs) And a bunch of people who care and a bunch of people who are open to learning. And, you know, we have a a very clear path to a different field, in my opinion. Clear might not be the right word. Uh, Available, very available path. And I think different people have a different role to play in that. But I, I really think that accountability thing is tricky when it comes to the treatment centers. But I do think that accountability to change is much easier. You know, you don't have to admit that something was bad before, right? Opening yourself up to litigation in order to say, we're doing it differently now. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And there can be an implication and it can be annoying and that's just how corporations are. But I do think that those changes are still possible. Mm. And the trust could follow after years of demonstration that they mean it, that they're doing it. I love that. I think that's a really practical application and helpful understanding of our realms and our um, limitations and capacities. And Mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me too, of what you were talking about of the different types of people on the board, where there's the visionaries who want to kind of break down the systems. And there's also the people who are like, I'm learning and I'm changing and I think mm-hmm. we, we need all of those people. I think right. there's this perception where it's like, well, I have to be one or the other. And it's like, we need people who are dreaming about how this can really happen and change. Mm-hmm. And we also need the people who are skeptical to tell us, okay, what does that mean about what is and isn't going to work and how we can do it differently and better? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I appreciate that. I like, I have this kind of little dream or fantasy, or I don't know what some word that I have this, um, idea of project heals board being kind of a microcosm of the eating disorder field, you know, with some people have lived experience. Some people have a loved one with lived experience. Some people have, um, activism background. Some people have advocacy background. Some people are outside of the system, you know, agitating it and other folks have helped build the system. And every single person in that story is necessary for it to actually change. You, you cannot, you cannot move forward in any substant substantive way without all of those folks on, on board, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, <laughs> and so I, I love the task that I have and the opportunity that project heal has to sort of show how these people can get along and get on the same page and move in the same direction, even if they're coming from totally different perspectives about it. And I think that microcosm can be a model for what the field does and for how to move the field forward. You know, if we only insulate ourselves with people who think exactly like us and talk exactly like us and have the same experiences as us, we simply are not going to to move an inch and we're not going to move anyone else. And so, yeah, I think that all parties have their role to play. And then there are a bunch of folks who, you know, would never deign to be on Project Hills board because they're so, so not believing in the system to the system's ability to change. And I still consider them a really important part of what we're doing because I'm learning from them all the time. You know, I'm listening, I'm hearing about 
I'm hearing that that anger and that pain and that personal experience of catastrophic harm done. And we need people who they don't owe us hope for systemic change. You know, they can, they can just be like, this is broken, burn it down. Mm -hmm. And we can still listen to what they're saying and learn how we catastrophically failed and figure out how to, I think that people kind of either feel like they have to join all the way and help and get on board with burning the system down. And then there's the people who stay in the system who are like, this is fine, you know, but the room is on fire. And it's like, there have to be some people who bridge between those conversations. Yeah. For me, I, because I believe that systemic change is possible in this field, that's, that's how I think about it is that we really need to be navigating and incorporating a practical understanding of how systems change, how long it takes for them to change, what it means for it to change, all the levers that need to be pulled, right? And then, but staying really, really close, you know, your ear on the ground and holding the reality of stories of people who are like, absolutely not on that page of change is slow. Change being slow is not good enough for people who are in the throes of a life-threatening illness um, Mm -hmm. and who've lost someone to that illness because the system's change is too slow. They don't owe their hope to anyone. They don't owe their patience to anyone. And I still really, really care about what they're saying. And I need them to keep sharing and keep talking and keep blowing it up and keep the pressure on because change doesn't happen without it. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of speaking about this, I know that we've had some really amazing discussion. And I want to know who is changing the field of eating disorders and who do you recommend learning from? Who are you learning from right now? Oh, <laughs> this is so hard. Who is changing the field of eating disorders? Okay. I, we have some really fantastic, just amazing people in our orbit and it's impossible to narrow down. I think that some of the innovative treatment models that are popping up with virtual bundled care are really, really cool. I think Equip is really cool, obviously pioneering in that space. And then Arise just launched this month, this this week. And one of our board members is the founder, Joan Jong. And I'm just really, really excited about what Arise is doing. There's a few others that are popping up too, doing really innovative care models. And I think what we know for sure is that our existing available treatment is just insufficient. There are not nearly enough spots for people. It's centralized in urban locations. It's expensive. It requires private insurance. All of these things do not work. And right. And so with these virtual care models, you break down geographic barriers, you break down some of those like carcerality concerns around being trapped in a building without your phone and without, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, All of those, like, I think recovery at home is a really, really interesting concept. And I'm excited about that. And I also think both of those companies have deliberately centered getting contracted with Medicaid and and Medicare so that it's accessible to folks without platinum private insurance and, and not a privilege only for people who have financial means and the best insurance coverage. So those are very, very cool movements in the field overall. And that kind of innovation is essential. The idea that we just keep going with brick and mortar as the only viable option is just not sustainable. And I think we can safely say that now after so many decades of it being very, very limited. The other thing I would say is more around thought leadership. I think some of the folks like Dr. Gaudiani, who are doing really important work thinking about um, the medical complications and not only waiting until someone is needing to be an inpatient in order to address the complex medical layers of this, I think is really important. I'm excited about Project Heal's research study related to barriers to access that's going to be published in the next couple of months so that we can really quantify what is getting in the way of folks accessing care. I think that's going to be really important. The EDC keeps doing really good advocacy work, obviously really appreciate them. But then I, going back to what I was originally starting with, like People like Deshaun Harrison, who wrote Belly of the Beast, are mind-blowing recalibrators. Sabrina Strings with Fearing the Black Body. These are bodies of work that radically reorient our understanding of what's going on. I think that 
Fed Up has been really doing incredible advocacy around gender diversity and eating disorder care and considering how much more common eating disorders are in gender diverse folks. It's so critical that they continue. They do really cool research and trainings. Love them. Gloria Lucas has been holding it down with some trainings that have blown my mind many times. And I really appreciate her. And then Dr. Jenny uh, does such cool work around anti-carcerality and eating disorder care. And she and Gloria and like some other people in Project Heals Orbit are just doing so much more work around harm reduction. And I'm really fascinated by that. Like, what are the roots of some of these issues we're trying to solve in history, in politics, in society? I love thinking about food and body as it relates to so many things. I think eating disorders get so siloed and it's like, this is absolutely related to so many other issues. It's, it's related to bodily autonomy. It's related to anti-oppression work. It's related to carcerality. Like we've talked about. I mean, these conversations happening in isolation are so scary that they're having isolation. And that's one of the biggest problems I think in the eating disorder field is we just have been so insular and we haven't talked across industries and across sectors. And so, you know, last month or the month before I went to the white house conference on hunger, nutrition, and health, and just two days packed. Was it two days? No, it was only one day. It felt like two days <laughs> packed with conversations about food and food scarcity and just not one mention of eating disorders in the whole thing. How is that possible considering that it's one of the most fatal mental illnesses? Its incidence rate is very high. These issues are affecting people across socioeconomic status. We have not done a good job of helping people understand how this relates to all these other issues. And so that's something I'm really passionate about. And so whenever I'm, you know, reading like a Deshaun Harrison or, you know, listening to a Gloria Lucas, it's like, we're talking about religion. We're talking about so many layers that have a lot to do with each other that are not being analyzed in conjunction with each other. Someone recently, just yesterday, Ames Babbage gave a talk about sex trafficking and eating disorders. And these conversations are intersectional. Like, of course, mm-hmm. these things have to do with each other. And the fact that there's entire communities and dozens of organizations that are focused on, you know, sex trafficking advocacy that have no concept, no conversation ever about eating disorders when the incidence rate is so high in that very vulnerable population. It's just it's, it's wild. So those are the people who I'm the most excited about and the organizations and yeah. Also, also I'm inspired by, you know, people on my board who, who are just doing amazing things. And I think we have a lot to be hopeful for, and a lot of minds are changing and a lot of people are connecting dots. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even in the book hood feminism, there was a Mm. chapter about eating disorders. So it was really, really good. And it's, I think the subtitle is like, you know, the people white feminism forgot, you know, the movement, mm-hmm. the white feminism forgot. And it's just going through all of the ways that modern quote unquote feminism, which is actually white feminism has totally forgot about so many intersectionalities that affect women of color. And the chapter about eating disorders was like really, really good. And I'm just so glad it was in there because so many people read that book that have no concept of eating disorders outside of it. And so we need to be talking to people outside of our little bubble outside of this weird sorority that we've created, you know, (laughs) I'm over it. (laughs) I think that's so apt. I love the new conversations that are happening and it feels exciting. It feels like there's movement and shifting and Mm -hmm. really exciting people. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. What are your favorite foods? this is tough. (laughs) So I really like food. Um, and I love, I mean, I love brunch. I love sushi. I love a good cheeseburger. I love pizza. I love a big salad. I love nachos. Mm. I love, um, fried potatoes in any form, really potatoes in any form, just there's not a single type of potato. I don't like breakfast potatoes might be close, but I'm like, think about this hash browns, tater tots, waffle fries, shoestring fries, steak fries, mashed potatoes. I already said that 
um, potatoes au gratin, so many delicious potato chips. Are you kidding me? Uh, oh, crispy, I wanna... like mashed and then fried. Oh gosh. Mm. Yeah. Baked potato, like yes. underrated. I want to have a potato party and I want everybody to bring a different kind of potato. That sounds really fun to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Make it happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely more savory than sweet, but you know, every once in a while I get a hankering for like a chocolate milkshake or, um, oh, a donut. Oh, I also love breakfast foods of all kinds. I love bagels and pancakes and steak and eggs and chili quiles and a breakfast burrito. I mean, I'm telling you, but I also like last night I had, um, sog paneer and basmati rice and a garlic naan. And I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. There's very few things I don't like. I think that's maybe an easier answer. I don't like beets. Mm. I don't really like pickled vegetables, Mm -hmm. which have been really trendy. I don't like salt and vinegar potato chips. Mm, I don't don't like ketchup. (gasps) I think part of it is like, I don't think I like vinegar flavors that are really strong is part of what all these things have in common. But not the ketchup, the ketchup on the home fries. Ketchup has no ketchup has like vinegar in it. It's quite tangy. I don't think I like tangy as a flavor. I feel like I think of ketchup as a little sweet. It is sweet. It's sweet and sour and it's terrible. (laughs) I don't know if I can publish this. (laughs) I'm very much an aioli girl. I want a variety of dips. I want a chipotle. Oh, I like love mayonnaise. Yeah, I know. That's a problem. I know. I know. I know. I promise I I wouldn't be food negative on this podcast, but this is the exception. (laughs) Okay. Well, I can hold space for how delicious mayonnaise is, even if you can't. And vice versa with ketchup. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the beauty of it. We have taste buds for a reason. You know, food is not just fuel. It's not just medicine. It's so much about pleasure and I think like figuring out the flavor profiles of the foods you like can really open up your, you know, variety. There's a lot of things people don't even realize that they would totally love because it's like very much in their texture, temperature, flavor profile wheelhouse. And it's really fun, I think, to figure out what people like and then go, you know, if you like this, you would love this other thing from this other culture or this other region that you've never tried because it sounds you know, quote unquote weird. And I'm like, it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. I love that. I'm so glad we got to both learn something from each other today. (laughs) Oh my gosh. The question I like to close with for everyone is how are you becoming? Can you explain what this means to me? No, it's an open-ended question. Okay. Okay. So I love that. Um, I would say slowly, stubbornly, um, consistently, uh, painfully and, you know, gratefully. Mm -hmm. I like the way you answered that. It's perfect. (laughs) It's a, it's a long road, you know, this becoming thing. Oh gosh. Maybe I should change my name to the stubbornly becoming. That's, that's that would be the name of my podcast. <laughs> the stubborn becoming. <laughs> yeah, I, I did not include lovely on that. I don't know. Maybe other people experience it as lovely, but I I said in therapy recently, I was like, I regret opening up this whole can of worms, you know, 15 years ago, trying to uncover my deepest self and my inner wounds like it never ends just when I think I've gotten somewhere I peel back a new layer and I'm like what the fuck sorry for my- <laughs> no, <laughs> you're good. uh it's just yeah it's it's a lifelong process no matter how many times we say it no matter how many times we think it's just it just is no it, it's not over and that's okay I think that's what keeps us 
honest is like, it just keeps us in a place of process rather than arrival. And I want to arrive so bad. I'm tired, you know, but it's, it's like, if you can shift to understanding and accepting that it's an ongoing process without an arrival point, then, then you start to, I think, kind of budget your energy differently and think about self-care along the way differently, because you know, that you can do really, really hard things quickly and intensely for short periods of time. You got to pay yourself if you actually want to stay in the game longer than, than that amount of time. And you can pause when it's a process because mm-hmm. you it's, wait, it's waiting breaks. for you at the end. It's waiting for you on the other <laughs> side, whether you like it or not. Exactly. Oh, thank, thank you, you for, for this. this. Oh, jinx. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs>